Hello and welcome to the Psychic Stories podcast, encouraging conversations about mental health. Today I'm speaking to Hope Virgo. Hope is a mental health campaigner, public speaker and author of Stand Tall Little Girl Facing Up to Anorexia. Good morning Hope, how are you? Uh, hi, yeah I'm good thank you, how are you? I'm very well, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. No, thanks so much for having me, it's yeah it's really good to be here obviously not in person but remotely <laughs> absolutely it, it, frankly it does feel like in person um um i'm in my daughter's nursery at the moment you are in your kitchen uh bedroom actually in your, your bedroom yeah so yeah. it is uh, it is uh, it, it, it's awesome to have you and and i think the goal of today is to have an open and honest conversation about your mental health journey to get some insight into the tools and techniques that have helped you and are available and accessible to other people and we believe that by discussing your journey we hope to share and normalize conversations about mental health as often people are not alone in these experiences sound that, good? that sounds great awesome hope right over to you we'd love to hear about your your mental health journey uh yeah so it's quite long um so i'll probably like yeah i'll give you a bit of and then we can kind of yeah see where it goes from there Perfect. but um so i developed anorexia when i was about 12 13 years old mm. um for me the anorexia was like a complete coping mechanism to life so kind of yeah dealing with emotions and feelings that i didn't really want to feel um i was also sexually abused so kind of going through that trauma um, was yeah I guess for me was like it became a bit of a clutch the eating disorder and a bit of a comfort around that um, and I ended up hiding it for about four years from people around me so eating disorders are really really secretive illnesses you don't always realize that you're doing something the matter but then at the same time you're too afraid to speak up about it because you're afraid what people will think and what people will say and because at that point in my life, the eating disorder was just always making me feel so, so good about everything going on. Mm. I just kept kind of clinging onto it and hiding it and doing exactly what it wanted me to do with regards to food, drinking and exercise. And that's the thing. So you, you, you were very young, you're 12 at the time. Did you yeah. know you had an eating disorder then? Or no. Or another behaviour? Yeah. No, so I didn't actually. So I think and I think this is actually something that's probably got harder for people nowadays than it was arguably when I was that age. Um, and I'm not even I'm only 30, so I'm not even like ridiculously old either. <laughs> um, but like nowadays, when someone develops an eating disorder, because eating disorder culture is so normalized, mm. I think it makes you question what you're doing. And it may, means that <clears throat> like a lot of us go on diets or we normalize kind of how little we're eating and whilst that was a thing when I was growing up it wasn't quite to the extent that it is now mm. so I think for most people with eating disorders you don't you don't realize there's anything the matter you mm. kind of assume what you're doing is okay and I think the reason one of the reasons for that is because it makes you feel so much better you just assume that what you're doing is totally normal and totally fine and you just adapt to it don't you and, and that's a natural human response isn't it you like i i have i'm feeling this you know like you said some some tragic pain through some awful situations that have gone on previously and you're doing something to make yourself feel better yeah. which to you is a positive thing yeah exactly. however as that progresses I can only imagine, I'm sure you're going to say that that can start to really hurt you physically and therefore you are then causing yourself pain. But the psychology, the, the psychology behind it is so strong that I assume it's extremely difficult to break. Yeah, no, exactly. And it is. And I think like for me, when I was first, like, I guess, first and well, was the fact it made me feel so good was what I clung on to. Mm. And it was like the fear, I guess, as well, that actually that if you take away that one coping mechanism to life, like what are we going to replace it with? Like what's going to happen? Like how will that feel? What will people think? Like, will I actually have to start kind of communicating with other people? And 
it becomes a really easy way to show that you're not okay and to kind of express yourself in that way whilst at the same time giving you the control and numbing all of those emotions that you just don't want to feel mm. it's interesting you say that so actually it's it's by reinforcing those behaviors you're sick you're signaling to the outside world that i'm not okay but i'm not going to talk about it because it's it's very painful and and frankly it's complicated to talk about how do you start to approach these conversations especially when you're 12 13 mm. 14 i assume when you're 30 now and you've gone through this you know you've gone through this 20 or 18 year journey it, it's easier to articulate but also you're a very open human being who's who's mm. who's comfortable with talking about it but to a lot of people who are still in that secret that must be so hard yeah and I think it is and I think particularly with like the pandemic and stuff and I guess as well because more people are talking about mental health now which is amazing but I think what we like over the last kind of year with like the pandemic with the increase in people struggling it can be really difficult to feel really heard and I actually, the thing I, I think the thing I struggle with more now is that because my, my family probably, well, they know that when I was at my absolute worst was when I was really, really struggling, when I was kind of getting treatment and support and stuff and putting on that weight, it meant that actually in the pandemic, I had to try and be really, really vocal about exactly what I needed and how things were going. Mm. And I guess the eating disorder uses opportunities like that to try and be like, actually, the easy way to show people you're not okay is to stop eating again or to start exercising too much. So it's like this constant kind of, yeah, battle in your head. And then also just feeling guilty when you do start communicating. Mm. And actually, when you start to be honest with people, you're like, what have I just done? Like, what have I just said? Like, yeah. are people going to call me out on it? Like, are people going to understand and how they're yeah. going to react? And it, it, and it's tricky, especially during lockdowns and, you know, that, that we're experiencing the moment when everything does feel out of control. Yeah. There, And I think I think you raise a really, really valid point that there is a very blurry area with eating disorders mm. male and female there's there, there is the 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 extreme end what you've experienced there's a blurry in the middle where people and i do i do think a lot of people have unhealthy relationships with food you go to you know when we were allowed out to dinner whatever it was and so you'd walk in and go oh you look awesome but actually what they're saying is that you look thinner yeah that and then suddenly there's this reinforcement of me me losing weight is actually better better for society better for people and that makes you, it makes you feel good but it unfortunately starts to unravel a really kind of a very uh, a vicious psychology which it's very difficult to escape from yeah no and you know, i completely agree with that and i think it's so difficult nowadays and you're right like people always are complimenting weight loss and yeah putting it on this pedestal and it's like, like celebrating it yeah, and I'm like, do you know what? Just because someone's losing weight, it doesn't mean they're actually healthy. They could, yeah. like, they might not even have an eating disorder. They might have had COVID. They might have cancer. Like anything else could be going on, mm. but we still, yeah, we still glorify it. And I think that makes it so so difficult when you're at that state. And I think as well, it's interesting because um, I do a lot of campaigning work around eating disorder access and support and kind of issues around BMI. And actually, quite often you have someone who's obsessively working out. Who firstly, their BMI will be higher potentially because they've got all that muscle. But secondly, because of society, we're like, oh, it's amazing! Like they've got loads of muscle; they're looking really healthy. Yeah, yeah. And actually, again, they could have this compulsion to yeah. be exercising twenty four seven. But we just don't question that, and we make that okay. Yeah, and and frankly, you know, w watching things on Netflix which are celebrating, you know, you know, for example, you know, I I, I have friends who do CrossFit. Yeah. I mean, to me outside of that it looks pretty obsessive 
Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that CrossFit is, you know, but a lot of people are participating in this very high intensity exercise and controlling what they're eating. It's it, it, to me, it doesn't seem like it's about the exercise. It's always seems to be about something else. And whenever you speak to people who are participating in the activities, you know, especially their friends, you know, perhaps going back, there is some things that are going on, which perhaps they would benefit from talking about to release that compulsion to always exercise or to eat in a certain way. Yeah, no, I agree. And do you know what? It's so interesting, sir, because I think as well, and I was thinking about this this morning randomly, was um, with things like exercise and normalising that, we've also normalised kind of suppressing our hunger through having like a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. And actually this morning I was like unsatisfied after my breakfast. So like half an hour later, I was like, went to make another cup of coffee. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm probably still hungry. Yeah. So and I think we as individuals, we have to reassess our relationship with food and... 100% like exercise and I know that with um I don't know a huge amount about this but with dry January they're mm. encouraging people to reassess their relationship with exercise mm. and actually we need to be doing that on a week to week basis if we feel the need to with with food and yeah. actually recently I've also been doing um this like challenge around my breakfasts and mm -hmm. introducing like a little bit more variety into what I'm eating and for me obviously I'm doing it because I'm conscious that the eating disorder is probably trying at the moment to try and claw its way back in mm. and take kind of the reins and make me feel better in the short term and whatnot so I'm very conscious of that so by being a bit more varied on things but actually even just from kind of doing this over the last couple of weeks I've had a lot of people who don't even have eating disorders mm. contact me being like do you know what like I've I have the same thing every day I don't even mm. think about it I I have my breakfast at the same time and well, it's like, yeah, that's fine. But at the same time, if we cannot add that variety, if that variety is added in and challenges us or makes us feel uncomfortable, that's when I think we need to start that reassessment. And yeah. people who exercise, like if you're going to CrossFit every single day and if you don't go for one day, you feel guilty. Mm. Maybe you need to step back and be like, actually, this isn't healthy. Yeah. And I think I think it's, 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 it's such a such a good way to put it about that kind of consciously appraising what you know why why you're doing certain things in terms of food and exercise and mm. i think like like you said that you know if we could ask why more often and like you said you said right you know you're like i'm gonna have another cup of coffee but actually you pause and go hold on why do i need another cup of cup of, cup of coffee oh hold on actually i'm hungry okay i need to eat yeah it's amazing that the brain no matter how magical and complex and and, and awesome it is it, it can confuse us and frankly a lot of the time you know I think there's a question but can you trust what it says initially when it has these snap judgments if you are able to pause and you know for, 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 for me a big vice was was sugary things having a sweet tooth I realized every time I reached for a chocolate bar and I said why I was like hold on it's not about the chocolate it's like I'm worried about something over here yeah and I started to really pull apart that kind of need to quickly judge right exercise food that's a quick fix but actually to pull apart it's often never about the food and once I address the other thing actually I don't really want the bloody chocolate bar yeah no it's, <laughs> it's so interesting and I think that is and it's hard I think because you yeah you have to reevaluate that yourself and yeah. particularly when you've had an eating disorder like there's a lot of guilt wrapped up mm. in assessing that and even this morning I was like I was like, oh, I'm really proud of myself. Like I did this. And then I was like, oh, but how does this work for the rest of the day? Yeah. And I think that's when you in recovery are able to move into a place where you're intuitively eating yeah. and not kind of over, like, I guess not overthinking every single thing you're having. Yeah. But yeah, we, we all have to do it and we have to work it. Yeah, it's we have practice, to work it out. Isn't it? 
Yeah, and whether the behaviour is constructive or destructive, I think. 100%, 100%. So I'd like to just 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 go back to, because you talk about that journey and the recovery. Just so from the beginning, how did that play out? If, it, um, if you don't mind me asking, how did it play out and how did you come to that recovery and seeing those steps? Because I, you know, I don't, I, I'm sure there's people listening who, who really are struggling with this and to hear that journey would be a source of inspiration like you are. Um, so I, yes, I, I hit it for quite a long time. So about four years um, and then ended up, uh, actually my school got in touch with my mum. So I went to my doctor and then was referred to uh, CAM, so Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services, mm-hmm. um, particularly the eating disorder service there. Um, I guess was lucky back then as well, because there isn't the huge waiting lists um, for services, particularly yeah. when it comes to eating disorders. So I was able to be seen kind of quite quickly, which was really helpful. Um, and then I then kind of had this massive assessment and looking back, it was a little bit ridiculous. I remember um, kind of sitting there for like an hour while my mum kind of talked and moaned and oh, it was just awful. And I was just sitting there thinking no one really gets what's going on. Like no one's asked, no one, no one really understands. Like, and then at the end of that appointment, I filled in quite a lot of questionnaires and um, kind of judging my mood, kind of things about body image and food and my relationships with people and things like that. Um, and it was actually my second appointment that they diagnosed me with anorexia, mm. but I just didn't, I just couldn't take the diagnosis. I didn't believe it. Um, I thought they were trying to take away this one thing in my life that made everything okay. And it was interesting because actually that evening I went home and I Googled anorexia and spent loads of time looking kind of into it and would end up on like these rabbit holes on the internet, mm. kind of, of various sites and really dangerous stuff. And I think there were probably moments over kind of the next six months where I was like, maybe I've got something the matter, Mm. but I didn't, I just wasn't ready to let it go because I guess I was afraid that there was nothing to replace it with. Um, And also you said it was part of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it it worked for you, but I suppose to see that as something that was, you know, I suppose, uh, how do you put it? Like malign, malignant, something Mm -hmm. that is wrong when actually this is something that is actually fundamentally especially during that those formative years where your psychology and your brain is changing like that is part of you i I, you you talk about the eating disorder you know from my understanding i don't have you know a huge amount of experience it it, it is part of you and will and i'm not sure whether it will whether it will ever leave you is that something which you will always challenge, be, be, be challenged with and battle with? It's something that you, that, that you are able to, to, to defeat. Yeah, it's so interesting. For, for, I guess, yeah, I guess from that like identity perspective and the thing that's part of you, it's like, I know, I, like I often talk about the anorexia as like kind of my best friend, but my worst enemy, because mm. it's giving you something, but what it is giving you is really dangerous and it's not right. Um, I do, I do believe 100% that full recovery is possible. And I think, yeah. I, I like I know a handful of people who've got to that stage oh, where it's so encouraging isn't it oh it's amazing and I think like for me the like the reality is in kind of laying everything on the table is I've probably been had glimpses of full recovery in the last kind of 11 years since coming out of hospital mm. um and then I've kind of hung on to those moments but then something's maybe happened that's kind of chipped me up a little bit and I think the big thing for me um and something that I'm kind of working through at the moment is I've never really been happy with my set point weight. So the weight that I should be at to be a healthy weight. Mm-hmm. And I've, I guess I realized over the last 
year that probably, and I think the lockdown probably made me realize this, was actually some of those behaviors that I picked up along the way. Like I do, I, I, I do exercise and I use that as a way to manage my well-being. I probably had convinced myself that my relationship with exercise was totally normal and that I was fine with food and I could go on holiday and I could do all of this sort of stuff. But actually just over the last kind of three weeks, I've been like, actually, do you know what? Like this isn't healthy, like this isn't right. And I think, yeah, like where I'm at, at the moment is I think it's gonna be, if I'm honest, like a really difficult six months of yeah. getting to kind of the set point that my body needs to be at mm -hmm. and moving back into that space where I can intuitively eat. But I also feel confident that I can do it. And I think, yeah, I'm in a space where I'm able to do that. And I think with eating disorders, you, you function, you coast along a lot and you have to challenge it. Like you have to challenge it because if you're not challenging it, it pulls you back in. Mm. And, and that's a challenge. And, and I think those those kind of three elements that you know like you said being happy happy with your set weight being content being confident um, and then being able to bring in those behaviors to be able to reinforce that that i mean it sounds like a tightrope that doesn't seem it seems like it's not like you get to a level and you, you plateau and you think right i'm good like for i assume for a, for for a, for a period of time those forces are pulling you in every direction so actually to balance them can be very very difficult and challenging yeah, no, and it, it literally, yeah, it is exactly like that. Like you're kind of challenging yourself. Yeah, you have to challenge yourself enough to push back on the eating disorder thinking. But then at the same time, you know that if you challenge yourself too much, then you might compensate or destruct like even that same evening or the next week. So it is working out, yeah, how much, I guess how much you can push yourself. And also along the way, like making sure that you've got a way to deal with it and being really kind of open and frank with people about actually this is what's going on. And I think that's probably the hardest thing. And I guess for me, because I talk very openly about my recovery, mm. I've actually just over the weekend kind of had to be really honest with people on social media and being like, actually, do you know what? Like I've never been happy with this, the weight that I've got to at a healthy weight. Mm. And I've never been happy with that set point. And like I guess for me like just being vocal about that whilst felt absolutely terrifying it brings that kind of eating disorder behavior a bit out into the kind of light and it get it makes people just I guess it helps people to be accountable to you as well mm. without people kind of interfering and judging your every move and also there's some really nice imagery there about bringing bringing that eating disorder like you said your best friend and your and your worst enemy out in front of you and say look I am going to challenge you like yeah. I am like you are not going to control me like like you yes you might be there for a long time and hopefully you will disappear at some point but I'm going to be the boss of this and yeah. I think I think that's interesting what you said about you know you, you've really it seems like and, and maybe there's parallels when coming to recovery through addiction at the same time that you fundamentally in order to go through that recovery process you you have to want to do it and it, it has you, you you can't it can't just be you know a hobby on the on the sideline it's I assume it's an all-encompassing part of your life yeah it 100% is and I think that's what's I think that's at times what's frustrating about it is you yeah you want a quick fix you want to be totally okay you want to yeah you want to be fine with your body and with food and it is just constant kind of day-to-day -day working at it and I think that's the thing is when you get sloppy in recovery, that's when it that's when it sucks you in again, and it's and it, it's I, I guess it's really frustrating for like and I feel like frustrated at myself probably at the moment with it because I feel like I probably was just getting a bit sloppy with it and actually even last night I was talking to my other half about it and was like 
and he was like to be honest I don't think you've been great I think I think you've been fussy about food for quite a long time Mm. and I was like yeah fair point like but actually I was kind of convincing myself it was such a recent thing but I think you need to have these moments in recovery where you have this realization and then it's like right I need to do this and go all in again and it's fine if you go all in and then two months down the line you have a bit of a plateau and then you have to then be like actually I'm going to do it again Mm. and then again and again and I think the more we put those steps in place to get there the more likely we the more likely we are to succeed it's like I actually had a talk last night um Mm. uh, at my local church and they the guy was saying like it's it's like training for a marathon he was talking about he wasn't talking about eating disorder called recovery um but he was talking about how like you grow your face you're training for a marathon and I was like that's what it is with eating disorder recovery we have Mm. to train ourselves like we would if we're going to do like a massive event and it's yeah and it's hard work and it's you get tired, you feel weary a lot of the time, but you've just got to keep pushing through it. Mm. Just, yeah, and keeping those things in mind. And actually something that really helped me this time around, but also the first time around was I had like a list of reasons to get well Mm -hmm. and things that actually the eating disorder was stopping me doing. And I revisited it kind of a week ago and kind of made another list to just make it really, really relevant to today with like real kind of concrete stuff and concrete things that actually if I if I get to this space, I can do all of that stuff. And yeah, yeah, it feels more, I think it feels more achievable and more exciting kind of knowing that actually I could get to that space again. Yeah. Sorry, that's a very long winded answer. No, no, but that's perfect because it serves as, like you said, the excitement and motivation in what, in what is what keeps you going. And I, I think what, what, what's tricky, I think, I think it, it makes complete sense about the, the, the marathon analogy, you know, frankly, it's almost like having a couch to 5k, for yes. eating disorders you know there's there's a there's a first step and that first step can be very difficult but once you do start to get momentum and you start to realize that there is some positivity at the end of it in terms of more things you can actually do and frankly have a hap, hap, maybe the belief that there is a more positive life at the end of it yeah and not like you said being being almost scared into though continuing those behaviors that's that's really encouraging like it's a the the one thing that sprung to mind when you were saying about the marathon is that naturally whenever we want to do something that requires energy we go to food yeah and it's it's a really difficult like i've certainly found in 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 my in my kind of just living experience that there seems to be a very distinct separation between energy required for food and mental energy like it's amazing Mm -hmm. you could be very very hungry yet you could have all the motivation in the world to achieve something. So often that assumption between needing necessarily to put something into your body to be able to achieve something is not necessarily true. Um, And therefore there is, like you said, that separation. And I think it was something you really highlight is that it's the the eating disorder psychology, right? Mm. And is there a, a kind of a simple, but very difficult in practice logic that goes to say that, that the eating disorder is a psychology and therefore if you can move to a psychology or a way of thinking where those assumptions aren't necessarily true or you don't believe them in some respects anymore that you can be on a path to a very strong recovery yeah no there is and I think I guess two things so firstly I think that quite often with the body image related stuff and I guess I I, I'm always really mindful of talking about body image because I I, my eating disorder wasn't caused by the fact I had bad body image Mm -hmm. but quite often the body image gets really wrapped up in it but interestingly the body image is something that actually when you go into treatment 
it's very rarely tackled. And actually for individuals, whether you've got anorexia, whether you've got bulimia, whether you've got binge eating disorder, the way that you view your body is going to change over time and your body is likely to change. And even actually when you look at like in, if like your body at the age of 18 is very different than what your body should be when you're in your 30s. And it just changes like our bodies change. And I think with eating disorders, it's like the reason that we get so stressed about that. And I'm speaking kind of quite generally is that actually it's because we're feeling out of control again because the eating disorder is making us feel so much worse about it and whilst I know my body image is extremely distorted I know that actually if I deal with a lot of the underlying issues around the eating disorder and what it gives me then that will kind of be changed and I think the second thing as well like on kind of the psychology factors it's so true like we have we have different triggers in life and for me like if I'm triggered by something whether it's I don't know it's a good example would be so when we went into when London went into tier four mm -hmm. it happened kind of yeah like within like a two-hour window and one of my safety nets was kind of working still so being able to go into schools and do workshops mm -hmm. and also going to the gym and within a two-hour period that had completely disappeared and I was literally like what am I going to do mm -hmm. and what my brain wanted to do was to then go to the gym that evening even though I'd, I think I was, oh no, I was having a rest day that day, but it wanted to go to the gym and not have a rest day, then like work out obsessively to then come home and then be like, it's fine, I can get through the next couple of weeks. Now I've done that. Screaming for control. Yeah. yeah. But actually, instead, I had this proper meltdown. I cried for ages. Mm. Um, it was quite, I it actually, I, all of this came, the tears changed when I was on my way back. Um, and I'd got Southwest trains from Clapham Junction to Ellsfield. And mm -hmm. I literally was like, just crying on the train and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but arguably, that was a better coping mechanism because I was then able to actually be like, when I got home, I was like, do you know what? I, this is really difficult. This is really tough. Mm. And then I had kind of sat down, had some dinner and then was like, actually, I need to reassess. I need to reassess this. I need to think that actually, yes, tier four is a trigger for me. It probably was a trigger for a lot of people that shift and mm. feeling trapped and out of control. But actually my way of responding to it was to have a massive cry, was to then make a list of every single thing that I had felt grateful for in the last lockdown and then come up with a bit of a plan of action for a new routine around actually how I was going to get through to Christmas and mm. like obviously Christmas all changed again but actually yeah. just I think just identifying those triggers helps you to then change up that psychology but also I guess being aware that quite often when you're in recovery from an eating disorder or other mental health issues if you're triggered by something you might respond in a bad way and so when that happens it's like learning from that and just kind of showing yourself a little bit of compassion yeah yeah, I, I, ultimately, that being kind to yourself. And I, I suppose in order to be kind to yourself, you've got to put yourself into, into perspective. And it seems like that's what you did when you got home. You say, right, OK, tier four, you know, I can't change that. Like, like you know, these these have changed this. However, this does not mean that I, you know, that I, 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 I'm done for. Mm. It means that, OK, I can adopt these strategies and therefore come to a accommodation with, you know, frankly, with your mind. Yeah. So, OK, this is what's going to this is what's going to happen. I suppose it's a negotiation with your mind in some respect, which is such a weird thought. Um, did you find that like going through that process, like it sounds like you're, you're very self-aware, very insightful in yourself and being able to go from a train journey from Kappa Junction to Elsa, which I know is a short journey mm. to be able to to come to a point of positive ending and it not lasting a week or so in terms of in terms of yourself struggling is it because of the tools that you received in recovery 
that you were able to process that much quicker? Uh, so I guess to caveat it, the reason I probably coped with that one much quicker was because I've had a number of moments over the last year in lockdown where yeah. I've haven't expressed myself in the right way, um, mm. where I've got really angry, I've shouted a lot. Um, quite often my other half is on the receiving end of that when it happens, in all honesty. Um, and I kind of take my frustrations out and I can't express myself and I get in a bit of a state. And quite often it has taken me probably at least 24 hours to shift that mindset, if not more. Um, so I think this time was more that I, I guess I didn't feel like I had a choice anymore. I was like, do you know what? Like, I need to crack this because if I don't, I'm just going to sit with these feelings for the next month. And Christmas, when you have an eating disorder, is already really challenging in itself. So I was like, do you know what? I can't add to that. Mm -hmm. So I think this time around, I was like, right, I can be proactive. Um, and I guess arguably... I probably also convinced myself that I that it was all going to go back to normal after Christmas. I was like, come Boxing Day and we'll be yeah. back on tier three and it'll be epic. And tier three is clearly epic. Yeah, tier three, <laughs> yeah. we'll skip along. Along the part, you'll be in Battersea Park with your coffee. It'll be great. Yeah. And then what happened? Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I think I've learned I've learned over this year like how to cope with those sudden changes much mm. more so. And it's definitely taken me the whole year to get to that state. Um, but I do also think that like I spent so I spent a year in hospital in treatment and having kind of one to one psychological support and having a lot of group work actually, again, has helped to just equip me to kind of get to that space. And I think sometimes and I guess, yeah, I, I, I guess to just add this in here is I think quite often when you're a mental health nurse, um, just in case any mental health nurses are listening or GPs and stuff, actually, I, I think it can also be really hard for them because they don't know what seeds they're planting when someone's in treatment. And I know I was really difficult actually at points in my treatment. And I think quite often actually it's, it is those skills and those coping mechanisms that we go back to. So I guess I just wanted to kind of put a bit of a cheesy cliche kind of actually, do you know what? Like if you're in that role or you're a GP or you're in services or whatever, actually those conversations that you have, even if the individual might respond by shouting at you or getting really frustrated when they're in treatment, actually all of that stuff does stick with us. And I think it's, I guess it's just important to kind of encourage people to just keep plugging away at that and yeah. kind of keep supporting and keeping being there for each other. Yeah, and I think I think there's there seems to be, and it has happened quite a lot across society in the last year. Uh, we're talking, you know, talk, you know, staying silent isn't an option now. And I think, like you said, the experience with the GPs, the mental health nurses, is keep plugging away. Just don't do nothing. Like yeah. it, something. So, every conversation does help and I think that's that you know that's really important and, and it goes from it goes when we talk about mental health it goes when we talk about um racial injustice like staying yeah. silent isn't an option anymore like you know if you're worried about saying the wrong thing then try your best and hopefully the other the other person at the other end of your conversation will appreciate mm -hmm. that you may not have got it quite right but at least you're trying to have that conversation because I think you said at the beginning like and I think it's such a positive thing and frankly while we're having this conversation that that people are talking about a lot about more uh, about mental health a lot more now but whilst we're talking about it and we're listening to it on podcasts on online I'm still not convinced we're actually listening to each other I'm not sure necessarily that these kind of conversations are promoting other people to have open and honest conversations. Yeah, I hope they are, but I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, and you know, I I would agree with that. I think quite often, and I feel really cynical saying this, but what I've noticed in the pandemic is, is people have so you you might share something, not you personally, but someone mm. one would share something personally about what's going on in their life, 
and then the other person will come back and trump that yeah and then it becomes into this kind of like oh who's got it worse um and i think that's i think that's just yeah i think it's been a massive extreme in mm. the last kind of year definitely and also when people respond and say oh well at least you're not xyz at least you're not yeah yeah and i remember it's not it's, that helpful i thought yeah and you're just like why yeah like this doesn't matter like yeah. Like, and I think as well, like we go, we also probably have a tendency and I know that I do this mm. and I'm trying not to do it, but we have a tendency to try and fix other people. <laughs> yeah. We're then not listening, not giving them that space yeah. to really kind of talk about it. And I, th I think that's, and I think that's for me has been a massive learning curve actually, mm. that I, I'm very good at telling people not to fix others, mm. but I need to obviously start, like, oh, I do. I need to start doing that for myself and being a bit more proactive in that. But I think also it's important when you've had a mental health issue is to actually feel like you can say to someone, I don't want to be fixed. I just want to talk to you. And actually, when I recently, when I had this realization about my recovery and kind of plateauing a bit, I had to sit down with my other half and be like, actually, this is what's been going on. Yeah. This is honestly what's happening. And I said to him, I don't want you to interfere. I don't want you to fix. I'm doing this on my own. Yeah. And you can check in with me yeah. every four weeks and see how it's going unless obviously he thinks there's like a massive intervention needed yeah, yeah. um and it was so funny because like two days later he tried to interfere and i was like what are you doing like you can't do that and then the next day we got off and he was like no i'm really sorry i didn't mean to i was like it's fine but i think that's the thing you have to just be so honest with people about yeah. what's going on but that remind yeah just remind people that you don't want to be fixed you just want to be had yeah and i think those i think those conversational boundaries are highly appropriate like mm. you know like you say you 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 do it with your partner i do it with my wife at the same time like yeah. often she'll come to me and well it started off by me trying to fix everything but in the end she's like matt i want to talk to you i don't want any of your solutions like they may be right but i don't care i don't want them i just want to vent at you and and so, 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 so we have a similar thing. And to be honest, we have it quite a lot now. Like, you know, if, 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 if the other person wants to talk at the beginning of the conversation, it's like, right, I'm going to vent. I don't want you to talk. I want you to listen. And, you know, and if the other person, it feels quite harsh because all you want to do is trying to help and fix, but you realize actually that what you're doing is not trying to help and fix. And actually you're not listening either. Every time they say something, you're thinking of something else that pops into your head and it becomes not necessarily about you, but your ideas and how you want to support and, that it just doesn't it's not helpful so i do think that kind of encouraging that better listening but i think we've been saying this for probably a thousand years listening yeah i'd agree with you i'm not quite <laughs> sure why we're not necessarily taking that advice but i would hope that we do listen more yeah and i love what you've just said then about um like yeah kind of preempting the vent with saying i just want to vent yeah it's I know, <laughs> it's, yeah because i was thinking the other day randomly was thinking like when you're like so i when my other half tries to jump like vent or talk about whatever i will jump in quite a bit and be like oh this like what if you talk about this you done this mm -hmm. and then i'm like and then some we were like am i doing that because i feel like my needs and what i'm going to say is more important yeah, yeah and so we had to have this chat where i was like and so now i'm consciously trying to be like when he talks about something i'm like i literally am like i didn't want to interrupt so badly <laughs> but i just i'm like don't do it hope don't do it and i'm like oh this is so hard <laughs> and, and for any of you who aren't watching the who are listening go onto the youtube and watch our faces because the faces <laughs> hope do your face because this is my face i'm like this 
I'm just, I, I just want to say something. It's so hard. It is literally <laughs> so difficult. You're like, oh, please just let me talk. But no, it's important. It is, and like, it is really important. Mm. Yeah, to try harder, to listen harder. If that makes sense. And you, and you find because I think what's what's you know you, you you've spoken about your partner a lot, and I assume you know a, a huge a huge factor in in in, in supporting you. You know, but we'd love to hear a bit more about you know eating disorders and relationships in general. And because I assume that you know the relationship between your family that 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 would have gone on a journey from the very beginning. Um, as a new, well, a relatively new parent myself, you know, think you know, I can imagine, I can perhaps start to imagine what your parents might have thought when you were twelve, and maybe apportion some of the the you know you know some blame onto them. Um, that's very complicated and I, I'd love to hear a, li a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, that's oh. fine. Um, so I guess, yeah, so I guess firstly kind of family relationships. So mm. I'm, so background, I'm one of five. Um, I've got, there's four of us who are very close in age, kind of a year, year apart averagely. And then I've got a younger sister who is uh, eight years younger than me. So when I started treatment, uh, Molly was, must have been like ten, nine or 10 at the mm. time. So she didn't really know what was going on. And I think looking back, like it was, it was really, really hard for her because she'd come and visit me in hospital, but not really be kind of brought into the loop as much. Um, my older sister was at uni, started, just started uni when I went into treatment. So again, it was difficult for her trying to support me remotely, um, but also was trying to like settle herself too. Yeah. And to get to a space where actually things were, things were gonna be kind of a bit strange and a bit hard. Um, and then my older brother uh, was, yeah, a year older than me. So he was, he actually went traveling for a year, um, kind of partway through my hospital admission. And then Samuel, my younger brother, I guess was kind of left with a lot of the kind of responsibilities. Um, and he would often have to sit with me at breakfast, which was really difficult for him. And looking back, like it was really, really difficult. And we are very close now. And he always tells me like how proud he is of me and that he's like loves me a lot. And it's, we send like these really lame messages to each other like once every couple of weeks. And then we then send these stupid emojis after and then we don't talk about it for like a couple of weeks. <laughs> like, this is so uncomfortable. And well, that's so, that's so nice, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it is like, I think, but I think it's hard for siblings because mm. your role isn't a caring role necessarily mm. but you love that person so much that you're like what do I do like how do I do this and that's just right now there isn't any support for siblings either really in this space mm. so again like you don't have that outlet you don't get it and I think yeah so that was difficult and I think my so my parents then um my parents had a lot of stuff going on when I was in hospital so they got divorced actually like a year a year after I came out of hospital mm. um but I, I hated my mum for the whole time I was in hospital. I blamed her for the fact that I was there. I didn't think she got it. Um, I also made her do the um, the eating disorder diet that I was on. So my mum's my mum had to like. I, and looking back, it was ridiculous. I think my mum was okay doing it because she wanted me to get to a better space and put on the weight. But it also meant for her that her relationship with food probably shifted us slightly yeah. um, as well. And actually, when I came out of hospital. I didn't really speak to my mum for about three years because we just had so much anger and so much emotion going on. And looking back, like it, it was really frustrating. I think quite often with eating disorder treatment, they use family therapy to treat the eating disorder. Mm. But because my family was so volatile and there was so many different emotions going on, it just didn't work. And I wish that as a family and as a treatment team, we'd pushed through that and actually got yeah. to that space. But I, th I think it was hard. And I, I guess like, 
I guess now in my family, I've, I slot back into the role of I'm the fixer. I kind of care about, I'm the carer. Like I manage the emotions and relationships. And, mm. and that's what I, that's still something that I have to, like I feel like I have to do and kind of put that ownership on myself. Mm. And I think from my side, like, it could probably be interesting to see like how that changes as I get older and have my own family. Um, but at the moment I'm, I'm kind of okay with it, I think. Um, and then, uh, actually, and then like friends wise, I think friends have been, always been great, mm. but again, kind of difficult for friends to navigate. And I think yeah. it's hard because you don't, because you don't really know what to say, what you shouldn't say. Yeah. So something that in the work I do now, like I often am like, actually, these are the things that are just unhelpful. And it's even little things like when you comment on someone with an eating disorder looking healthy, although that might seem like completely okay. Yeah. When you've had an eating disorder, if someone says that to you, it's just like, oh, my brain has gone into overdrive. Like, what does healthy mean? What does this look like? Mm. Um, do, 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 sorry to interrupt, just on that point, going back yeah. to what we said earlier, is it, would you prefer someone not to say that? Or would you prefer them to say silent? Because obviously yeah. they're trying to say something encouraging and supportive, but obviously it's not. So what's the balance and for those friends who are supporting people with it? Yeah, so I think it's about kind of commenting maybe on other things. So yeah. when you have an eating disorder, um, whatever sort of eating disorder it is, you do lose this kind of glow in your face. Um, you don't smile as much or maybe not as actively involved at meal times. Your hair often thins. And whilst obviously everyone's eating disorder is so unique and we all have different side effects, those are kind of core ones that often present. So I think for me, it's like actually... I guess remind like saying to someone oh it's amazing that you're so involved today or your hair's looking really good or like I really like it when people say oh you've got that glow back you've got more energy you're talking more because actually right. I'm an extremely talkative person and um but when I'm struggling again I kind of withdraw a lot mm. so I think that's quite a good one um, okay so it's focusing so I suppose for the friend's perspective it's focusing on what they know their friend's positives are yeah and, and that's bespoke isn't it yeah it is exactly and I think like so my in my family we have a we like we don't talk about weight obviously ever mm. but I am I, I I am allowed and me and my mum have got this relationship now where I can say to her does my weight look okay like how does this look yeah. and actually having that direct question every now and again is something that is is helpful to have because I've mm. got that sounding board yeah. where actually which sometimes I need and at first it was definitely a clutch it was definitely something that I would ask to be mm. like I'm not okay like I'm still struggling with this but over time it's become something that I've asked less and less and less but yeah my my mum's the only one who can have that conversation yeah. with me and I trust her with that actually and what happens in a situation where you do say you know you ask about your weight with your mum and she comes back and says, actually, I don't think it is right. Like, because that's obviously a difficult thing to say, but the, the fact that you have that relationship now, which is an amazing relationship to have, to have that conversation, but you're going to have to navigate and deal when perhaps it, it's not the answer you want. Yeah, no, and it's it's so true. So in 2016, I relapsed um, and my mum came to London, um, kind of, I'd kind of stopped messaging on WhatsApp and just had kind of completely withdrawn. Mm. And um, she did come and she picked me up on my weight. And I think it was interesting because it was a very ballsy thing I've had to do, firstly. But I didn't get angry. I was relieved that someone had reached out and said something to me, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of weeks later, actually, my one of my best friends, Nikki, she did. She also said, she asked me, are you calorie counting again? 
And actually, she didn't say she didn't comment on my weight or anything, mm. but it was that realization that actually she'd noticed that something wasn't quite right. And whether it was a weight thing she'd noted or whether it was just that behavior, that withdrawal stuff. And actually having those conversations, I think definitely get easier. But I, I guess I, I guess the caveat all of that is actually quite often when you have an eating disorder, we talked about how secretive it is. So more often than not, when you have that direct conversation, whilst I think it's so important, like the person will say they're okay, they'll push back. And in those situations, it's like, actually, you have to follow up. You have to keep checking in with them mm. and keep giving them that space to feel really, really heard. And and I wonder whether, do you, you know, very difficult, but do you push it when, if someone gives you an answer, you say, I'm sorry, I don't believe that. Like, is it something to push or is it something to go, okay, privately acknowledge that, okay, something, I think that something's not right. They are they are not not talking about it they don't want to talk about it. so perhaps my role isn't to push but it is to maybe check in a little bit more yeah i think that's right so it is yeah, about yeah. and if you i guess if you're a friend as well then it's like like if you feel like you want to tell a parent like do it mm. like i think so often we get so caught up in like letting someone down and losing that trust but actually at the same time like sometimes we have to we have to I guess tell on, not tell on them is the wrong word, but we do, we have to bring that, yeah. that behavior out because if we don't, then actually that individual is gonna keep struggling and yeah. suffering in silence. And I think I think it's really hard with eating disorders though, because it isn't about the weight and you can't, you can't tell how someone is doing based on their weight. You can have someone who's overweight, a healthy weight, someone who's muscular, someone who's unhealthy. And because, because eating disorders aren't about that, it's like actually that person could look fine, but mm. be physic be mentally really, really struggling. So I guess it's like, I think just checking in with your friends who've had eating disorders and identifying that there will be certain points of the year that might be a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And just opening that dialogue. And I think, and I, th I think for me, like I'm, I'm lucky in that sense that my friends know when to do that now. So like in the run up to Christmas um, yeah. and like just things like that, like they're just aware of it. And I think I, I 100%, I, I'd never really quite clutched the impact it could have on people around christmas time like i i started i i then i well then it started chatting i said what, what why is everyone obsessed about food at christmas anyway like everyone just seems to talk about food what are we eating what are we doing what is this and actually you can see how for a lot of people that can be really 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 difficult and perhaps in some respects it seems like what you're suggesting as well is that not only having a good supportive network around you but a supportive network that communicates independently of you as well so that everyone's almost looking after you there's a kind of supportive supportive web around you where your friend might be speaking to your parents and you know everyone's just kind of checking in just to make sure that everything's okay but that does take you know that that does take when lives are busy you know it's important to prioritize that and and, and watch when your friend's behaviors do change and you know i you know think during lockdown you can start to see when behaviors do change and then when they do change and you think oh that's not quite right make sure you do reach out and you know find that energy that you know that conversation will lead to something a bit more positive yeah no exactly and I think I think again it's it's really hard and it's particularly the older you get mm -hmm. because you do have that you do have other relationships that maybe your parents don't know about you might have friends that you're closer to you know like any like we'll just grow apart we just mm -hmm. that support network will grow apart and it will change and it will adapt and I think that's also what's challenging is I know I know for me like I often will say to someone but I'm telling you but don't not tell anyone else like like I want to be able to manage this, I want to do this on my own. 
but actually I, I I do also know that actually when I do say that people do still have that conversation but I guess for me to feel less guilty about it um it does help alleviate it a little bit and I think as well actually something that um I do talk about kind of sometimes is having like a bit of a prevention kind of plan or strategy in place and I think this goes for every single mental health type of mental health issue and I think um I think Mind maybe have one on their website. I'm not mm -hmm. sure, um, but it basically is just like an A4 page where you where you write kind of the behaviours to look out for if you're starting to struggle again, um, like whether it's kind of a food related issue, whether it's you drinking more, you're withdrawing, whatever it is, kind of looking at those behaviours and making sure that they're real concrete behaviours. You then work it through with someone else and say so that that person is aware of this. And then you both kind of sign it. So you're like, actually, I'm making a commitment yeah, to I this. Like Next lot. time I get into this, actually, you can pull this out. And I think it's really important when you do that when you're in that right headspace and you're feeling more positive and better about things, because actually that's when you don't want the illness to come back and you don't want to start struggling. And I think, I think like regardless if you have a mental health issue or not, mm. actually, those are the kind of things that really, really help you. Um, I actually created a couple of weeks ago, like a well-being container thing, um, which basically had a list of things that I need to do every single day and every single week um, to manage my recovery and to manage my emotional well-being. And on it, there's like a little box in the corner, which is like emergency. Um, so in like an emergency situation would be when my mood is kind of plummeted. I'm stressing, yeah. I'm maybe crying and shouting. And on it, my other half is able to kind of make me a cup of tea and force mm. me to go for a walk or to sit outside and he can have that and we've written down exactly the phrasing that he would use and um, I haven't yet had to use it yet yeah. and I'm not sure how I will respond when it happens yeah. but I think it's I think it's important to look actually as individuals what do we need every single day every single week to keep ourselves in that right headspace yeah and, 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 and that's exactly that's exactly what we you know what we're what, what we're trying to promote an understanding of those kind of tools and tips techniques and tips that have helped you in your very specific journey but there might be more kind of broadly accessible and available to other people because I think I think what, what, what I certainly realized like along this psychic journey is that there's well actually because my mental health journey is that there's, there's a lot of stuff which you can pay for which yeah. is which is important professional help is also exceptionally important but there's loads of stuff which you can do for free every day which can help you prevent things from happening yeah. so I, i'd be interested to know from your perspective from your your kind of from a perspective of your own eating disorder what are your tools and tips what is in that well-being container what what do you do every day that really helps you um so i always i'm trying to think now kind of concisely what i do every day i do a lot but that's okay like yeah. to, like to, to, to do a lot is great yeah. we'd love to hear it so I guess the first thing is I always have I always have a quiet time every single day. Mm. So for me, my quiet time is reading my devotional and kind of praying. Um, but for other people, it could be kind of meditating. It could be just journaling um, as well, maybe in your quiet time. But I always block out a 20 minute to 30 minute time where I will do that. As a good way to frame it. It doesn't matter what you do. It's just quiet time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like and. That. So and then I guess a more lockdown specific one at the moment. So I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm listening to podcasts um, 
and making sure that kind of three times a week I'm going out on my own for a walk at lunchtime to listen to a podcast and actually last week my other half came with me and we both listened to podcasts because I was like this is my podcast time um and we must have looked like we'd had this massive yeah. argument walking down the street next you to may me. hold my hand but you must not talk to me pretty much <laughs> yeah and I think actually you know what? it was really it was really nice doing it with someone but feeling like I could do that like that yeah. um I think for me exercise is a big part of my recovery and it is something that I obviously have to be really mindful of mm. but it does help to give me the headspace that I really need and like the headspace to yeah. yeah the headspace to kind of understand where I'm at with things to process things to think about things yeah. and whether that's kind of exercising in a walk or kind of doing um I do quite a bit of strength training mm-hmm. um and I'm a runner so kind of using all of that kind of varied up but also making sure when I do exercise that I'm doing it for the right reasons. So I'm yeah. not doing it to kind of burn calories or punish myself, um, but I'm moving for that enjoyment and pleasure. Aspect. And you have to remind yourself on that. You say, right, I am going to go to, I'm going to do some strength training now, but I'm not doing it for X, Y, and Z. I'm doing it because of this. And it's, I think that's a really important thing. You said, but to your mind, you'll say, I'm doing this for positivity, not for negativity. Yeah, no, and it, do you know what it, it is? I have to, yeah. I guess I don't have to be say that every single time, mm. but there are certain points when I have to be aware of it. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I think when I've had a particularly difficult week or if I'm feeling a bit stressed about something, then that's when I have to be a bit like, actually, this is what's happening. And again, yeah. I think if you're someone who is kind of obsessively exercising, mm. you have to learn to be honest with yourself about that. Like if you can't go a day without exercise or if you, if you can't be honest with people around you. And I think having that accountability in that again, really, really helps. And actually just for example, so this morning, um, I slept really badly last night, got up this morning, um, my alarm went off and I was like, do you know what, I really don't wanna get up. I really don't wanna go for a run. But then at the same time, I knew that actually, if I didn't kind of go for a run this morning, then mentally, whether it was an eating disorder thing or not, actually I wasn't gonna feel great today. And it was Mm. gonna set me up kind of not for a great start to my week. So instead of going for like a long kind of compounding run, I actually did a slow jog, stopped in Battersea Park, took some nice photos. The sky Mm. looked amazing. So I was like, I'm so pleased I did this. but actually, and I think just being aware of that. So actually I count, I knew that I'd feel better for going for a run, Yeah. but I knew that I had to be mindful of how I was running and what I was doing. So actually I think having that in, having that is really important actually. And I think it's like, I think you, you highlight the, the, the need to be flexible as well. Yeah. So you're saying that this particular time is running time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be running five minute miles. Like if you're not feeling like you're able to do that, then just getting out and jogging for 10 minutes and walking for the rest of the time, that's okay because you you know from your own personal experience that you'll come home and you'll feel better and you'll sit down, whatever you're doing for the rest of your day and go, I exercise, I feel good. Mm. And that and that's a really nice way, like you say, to start the day, but also to start the week because we do work in these funny cycles, which are, it, it seems to, it, it does make it, it, it does really help if we start to kind of front load our positivity because then when we reach the end of the week and we're exhausted, we say, oh, do you know what? you know, I can chill out now. I've done loads. Yeah, no, exactly. No, I agree. Um, yeah, agreed. And I think on that positivity thing, actually something that I do do, and I don't do it every day, but I try and do it kind of weekly is just think about things I'm grateful for. Um, and I think like writing them down for me really helps because it just helps me to kind of, I guess, put my kind of ground myself a little bit more actually Mm -hmm. to be like, actually, I'm thankful for all of this stuff. And yeah, life might feel really difficult, but 
I, I do believe that there is always something to be grateful for. Yeah. And even yeah. if that, like some days for me, that's literally like my duvet. I'm like, I'm so grateful yeah. for my duvet. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Or I might be like listing my things off through like tears, but I'm like, actually there is still stuff. Um, yeah. And I think then like, I guess finally, it's just that kind of, I guess like just talking about things. And I always think like when you say that, and we've talked a little bit about the talking and the listening and stuff already, but it's like actually just really being honest with people around you and whether that's in the form of therapy, whether that's in the form of, yeah, like talking to your family or writing stuff down and sending emails, actually just allowing yourself that space to talk. Mm. And I guess in one sense, like I, <clears throat> like I do feel quite lucky because I've had a lot of therapy in my life and I've had that space to really process a lot of stuff and kind of get to a space where I don't really need that therapy quite as much anymore. Mm. And some people won't yet be at that space, which is totally fine. But I think just working out actually where you're at with things and, and who you've got around you. And actually, I do, um, sometimes when I go into schools and stuff, you have kids who come up to you and they're like, oh, I've got no one to talk to. Like, how do I talk to my friends? Like, what will they think? And I think sometimes it is just like, some days I would literally say to like my mom or my sister or whatever, I don't feel great today. Mm. And it's like, they don't try and work out what the problem is. They don't even ask me why I don't feel great. They just accept the fact I don't feel great today. And I just need to tell someone. Mm. And I think having that is really, really important. And if we start doing that, then actually slowly over time, we will then feel like we are more able to share more of our vulnerabilities with someone. I think uh, you, 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 you raised a really important point about kind of validating your, your validating feelings and, and getting people to accept your feelings. It's if you're, if you're not having a good day, that's not a signal for someone to try and cheer you up. No. It's for for someone to go, yeah, okay, I'm 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 so sorry you're having you're you're not having a a, a, um, a great day. Um, um, and you know perhaps you know just carry on a conversation about something completely mindless. But yeah. there's a real interesting process about you know someone validating and saying, oh yeah, it's okay to feel crap because. And I I think that's I think it is important. And I think it's like yeah, it's okay to have a rubbish day and to feel rubbish, but it's like what then? Yeah, what yeah. do you need in that space at that moment? And sometimes actually I'll bring up my sister and be like, please just talk at me. Yeah. And it must be tough. She's then like, oh, what have I done? And finally yeah, right. now she's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm like, <laughs> talk. So yeah, but I think yeah, I think working out who you've got around you and also realizing that some of your friends you won't want to share stuff with, and yeah. that is totally okay. Mm. And it's like work out then what their role is. Like I've got friends who I don't talk to about like mental health stuff, yeah. but know that actually if I'm feeling rubbish, I can give them a ring and we'll go out and we'll like have a like good evening out, which obviously right now we can't do that, but yeah. actually just having that distraction in place and knowing where people yeah. fit in is really important. And I think like to, it seems that, you know, while we're talking about the tools and tips and techniques, like really what we're saying on underlying all of this, and often what we hear about on, on, on across a lot of these, these podcast conversations is, is just give yourself time and that time every day to do X, Y, Z, to make you feel better. That's the important thing. It's time to time for yourself. It's yeah. time away from work. It's time to have a conversation. It's, you know, ultimately what starts all of this before you say, I'm going to meditate, pray, whatever it is, you need to give yourself time to do that. And if you don't give yourself time, then whatever you're struggling with, it is a, you have, there's a much, much greater probability that you're not going to recover from yeah, that. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Whatever, whatever's going on, it's like, give, your, yeah, give yourself that space and work out what, yeah. those, what those steps will be to get to that point where actually you're able to, you're able to manage it and you're able to start prioritising your needs yeah. 
against others and I think yeah I, I, I like I get it's really difficult and mm. I guess in that sense as well whilst <clears throat> I do kind of take on the role of kind of caring for my family in that sense like I don't have children of my own so I've got like I and like I wouldn't be able to navigate I don't think homeschooling and working and all of this sort of stuff but I think it is like whatever it is just taking that little bit of a time for yourself is just it's just key at the moment yeah and and allowing yourself to process some of these difficult yeah. things you're talking you, you know you're thinking about and talking mm. about hope thank you so much for a fascinating insightful conversation we have we have we have gone we have gone from your journey from the age of starting at the age of 12, but before that and working our way to where, you know, in a position now where you're having a conversation, you're going into schools and frankly, you're, 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 you're talking about that inspirational journey and spreading that message that 100% recovery is possible. Cool. No, thanks so much for having me on. It's been literally lovely talking to you. Well, thank you so much. I've, I've, I've greatly enjoyed it. Um, and thank you to everyone listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on most major podcast platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Apple Podcast. Just search for Sidekick Community or Psychic Stories and we'll pop up. And please, please do give us a rating if you like the show. And you can check out our free Sidekick app for iPhone and iPad, a collection of interactive exercises, tools and tips to help you boost your mental well-being. The app enables you to build the personalised wellbeing toolkit to help you deal with life's ups and downs. Just go to our website, www.sidekick.org.uk and click the download now button in the header to take you to the app store. Hope, thank you so much again for your time. No, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.